Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. And if I were to give a title to what I want to share with you, it's probably going to be more of a teaching today. Um, It would be in the form of a question. And I'm asking you and I'm asking myself this same question. Who are you? Who are you? And I believe our text today has some very interesting answers to that question. And, you know, we live in a time, we live in a culture, not only here in the United States, but it's spreading globally around the world, uh, a time of great confusion, great, I don't even know what the word is, lack of common sense. It's almost a spirit of insanity that I'm seeing coming upon the people. And the Bible calls it darkness. The Bible calls it blindness. And we know from 2 Corinthians 4, this is one of the the enemy's greatest strategies is to blind people. Blind them so they cannot see the goodness of God. They cannot see, hear, or understand the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation He came to give us. And I've been meditating all weekend on one little verse. You don't need to turn there. It'll be easy for you to find if you want to look it up. It's the very last verse in the short little book of Jonah. Everybody knows the story of Jonah, right? Very interesting story. I'm not going to talk too much about it, but Jonah was a very interesting prophet, and God gave him the very unpleasant task of going to Nineveh and proclaiming God's word of judgment to that land. And you know the story how, you know, he ran to Tarshish and he didn't want to go there because he kind of already knew what God was going to do. I know what you're going to do. I'm going to go there. I'm going to proclaim judgment. And then you're going to have mercy on them. And you're going to make me look like a fool. So finally, the second time around, God calls him. He goes to Nineveh. And you know the whole story. And even at the very end, Jonah's still having a pity party. He's angry at God. He's angry at everything around him. And God comes to him and says, do you have a right to be angry? Jonah says, yeah. And the very last verse is God's final word on the whole thing. And I'll read it to you. You don't need to turn there. But it's a fascinating insight into the heart of God, I think, and really what was going on in this whole story where God and the prophet go back and forth. And then in verse... I'll I'll pick it up where I, I... mentioned, you know, God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? He's all upset about this vine that that withered up. I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. (laughs) This is a prophet of God. I love it. Makes me feel a little better. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And listen to this. But Nineveh, these were not Israelites. These were were pagans. 
But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell or discern their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Interesting. God was concerned even for Nineveh. And out of his concern, he sent Jonah there to proclaim judgment, but it brought about the desired end. They repented. They repented and they turned to God with fasting and prayer and sackcloth. And God was so moved, he forgave them. But there's one thing I want you to notice here. God said, I'm concerned about these poor people because they cannot discern their right hand from their left. They cannot discern their right hand from their left. You know, when a people comes to that point, I think it would be safe to say they're in blindness, they're in darkness, and they're in real serious confusion. Real serious confusion. And I want to kind of posit to start with today, our culture is very similar to the description given about Nineveh. There's such a confusion, many people don't even know who they are. I would call it an identity crisis. And it's manifesting in some very strange and bizarre forms as we progress closer and closer to the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We now have a gender identity crisis. Last time I checked, it's not difficult. It's really not complicated. In the beginning, God made them male and female. Pretty simple, right? I'm a biologist. It's pretty simple when you look at the biology of it. You're a male or you're a female. One of my former high school graduates, when he was applying to the University of Maryland, he had to fill out an application, of course. And when he came to the section in the application, you know, name, address, sex, you know how many boxes he had? 18. I understand now it's up to 24. You know what's interesting, though? We had to renew our driver's licenses recently, and they still only give you two boxes, male or female. It's a bunch of hogwash. It's a bunch of confusion. And young people hear me. I feel so sorry for this young generation that's growing up in this confusion. That's all it is. Total confusion. God made them male and female. And even on a simple thing like that, like knowing your right hand from your left, many people are in the dark now. Many people are in the dark. But First Peter, I think, gives us some very interesting answers to the question, who am I? Who are you? What is my real identity? How many of you saw the movie Overcomer? Oh, come on, brother, you got to show that to them. Overcomer, fantastic Christian movie that came out this past year. 
Uh, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but there are actually, in my opinion, there are a number of overcomers in the movie that had some real challenges to overcome. But sort of the, the star of the whole story is a young high school girl who has asthma, and she's not saved. Um, she thinks that her father is dead, and she lives with her grandmother uh, in, you know, rather poor circumstances. And she decides she's going to try out for the cross-country team in her school. And she's got asthma, and she has all these things against her, but she ends up uh, being the only... <laughs> person in this school on the cross-country team, and she wins the whole state championship. And I won't tell you all the other things that go on in between, but the principle of this school, it's a Christian school that she attends, even though she's not really a believer. The principle of the school, uh, some of you may know Priscilla Shriver. Uh, she played in War Room, uh, Dr. Tony Evans' daughter. Well, she plays the principal in the school, and you find out toward the end of the movie that she knew this girl's mother. They were close friends. The mother got mixed up with a guy who was a drug addict. She got on drugs, and she ended up dying. And the story that they told this little girl was her mother and father were both dead and gone, and now the grandmother was raising her. Well, she eventually finds out that the father is not dead, he's indeed alive, uh, and he's become a believer. And he's in the hospital, he's gone blind, he's dying, and he really only has weeks to live, and there's the whole story of how they get reconnected and all that. But in the middle of that, the principal calls this girl into her office one day and leads her to Christ. And it's very powerful, and what she tells the young lady to do is go home, and get out a notebook and read Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 and write down everything it says about who you are. And so they show her, you know, reading through the Bible and writing down, I am a child of God. I am chosen by God. I am loved by God. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. And she has this big long list of things. And she gets so totally transformed by the good news of the gospel the next day she goes into school and there's a group of kids, I guess it's like a drama class, and they're all giving their presentations, really terrible presentations, in front of the drama teacher. And she stands up in front of this whole group and just volunteers um, to say who I am. And it's, it, for me, it's one of the most powerful moments in the movie. She says, I am a child of God. I am loved by God. I am chosen by God. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. And it's really powerful. And it brings this message, uh, especially for young people, uh, to, you know, real clarity that who are you? Is it who you think you are? Is it who the society says you are? Or is it who God says you are in Christ when you come to him with sincerity of heart. And so, along that same vein, uh, as we're reading these first verses in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, I want you to be noticing, and I'm going to list probably about six 
different things that it says here about who you are, who I am as a believer in Christ. Are you ready? 1 Peter 2, starting with verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Okay, from verse 2 again. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Once you were not a people. (laughs) What a statement. And that's where many are in the world today. They're, They're really not a people. They've not found who they are. Because outside of Christ, we're really not a people. We have no true identity. We take on whatever identity the world stamps on us. And I'm going to list a few things here. Um, I'm not saying these are hard and fast, but I listed about six different answers to that question here. Who are you? Who are we? Who am I? And we'll look at each one of these very briefly. Number one, he calls them newborn babies. Newborn babies. Second, he calls them living stones who are being built into a spiritual house. I'm going to put those together. Living stones being built together into a spiritual house. Thirdly, he tells them they're a chosen people belonging to God. Fourth, he calls them a holy and royal priesthood. 
Fifth, he calls them a holy nation. And finally, he refers to them as aliens or pilgrims and strangers. Quite an interesting identity there. Babies, living stones, chosen people, priests, holy nation, aliens, and strangers. The first one is a very important theme in First Peter, and it actually begins in chapter 1, and that is the whole concept of our need to be born again. He's referring to them, quite likely many of his uh, readers were just recently converted, recently saved, and so he calls them newborn babies. Jesus put it this way when he spoke to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's not an option. It's not something that happens to a few elite or select, you know, really spiritual people. It's an absolute necessity. And here's the reason why. We're born in sin. We're born a sinner. We're born with a sin nature that actually sets us up as enemies of God. Our minds are set on all the wrong things. Our, our whole life to various degrees, some of us, you know, kind of grow up as better people than others. But the bottom line is, we've all sinned, all fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we're in desperate need, not of a little bit of religion, not just to put a little band-aid on a cut. We need to be absolutely, totally, completely transformed. And that's why Jesus uses this metaphor of being born again. Born again of a whole new father. Father God is now literally our father. And First Peter chapter 1 goes into a little more depth on this, and we'll look at these verses in just a moment. But basically, uh, we are born of a new seed. We're born of our heavenly father's seed, which is the word of God. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, we can see right off the bat, Peter starts talking about this because he knew its importance. No doubt he was there that night hearing what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus about. No, 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 no. It's not about entering into your mother's womb a second time. We're talking about a spiritual transformation where you're born from above is actually the best translation. Born from above. Born again. And in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Peter really starts his letter off here saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise God for his mercy. He gave us new birth. It's an absolute miracle when a person gets born again. You know how great a miracle it is? Jesus said every angel in heaven celebrates when one person gets born again, when they repent 
and turn to God, all of heaven rejoice. That, that's how great a miracle it is. Bible puts it another way. We are new creations in Christ. All the old has passed away. A few things became new. All things become new. You're a brand new man, a brand new woman. Your whole identity changes when you get born again. You have different DNA now. You're born of God. You're born from above. There's something of heaven now in you that wasn't there before. And he goes on in chapter 1, jump down to verse 23, and this is actually what leads into where we began in chapter 2. He says in verse 23, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. You have been born again, not by some mystical force, but through the Word of God. See, God's Word is His seed. And that's how a person becomes born again, by believing, responding to, reacting to the Word of God. And of course, the Word of God, the first thing it speaks to us is repentance and faith. Turn from your old ways, come running to the cross, and put your faith in the Word of God. So, he addresses the folks here, again, in chapter 2, in verse 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. So, the implication here. Now that you've been born again, now that you are a babe in Christ, you need nourishment, you need food, you need to grow. Now, I'm sure you've heard this analogy many times, but sometimes it's helpful to hear it again. You know, when a little newborn infant, you know, a month or two old, cries and throws up on you and, you know, messes their diaper, we expect all that. Uh, that, that comes with the territory. We expect, you know, we're going to have to clean up lots of messes after an infant. If you have a 17-year-old son that's still doing all of that, uh, you have pretty good reason to be concerned now. <laughs> Why? By 17, you expect some growth, right? Not just in height, but in maturity, in abilities, in understanding, and on and on it goes. Well, the same is mentioned here. As babies, make sure, and I like the uh, NIV, I don't know if it's the same, desire, it says. Uh, in the NIV, it says, crave. Have you ever seen a really hungry baby, a really hungry infant, craving that milk? That's the picture Peter is trying to paint for us desire to get into God's Word. You know, more than ever before, we need to be in this book. We need to be looking at the pages of Scripture because if you're listening to the world, 
and you're listening to all the wacko philosophies and ideas out there, you'll end up just as confused as the Ninevites. But if we turn to the Word of God, the Word of God is not only how we become born again, it's the food that helps us to grow. I like the way it reads here, uh, so that by it, the milk, the Word of God, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Grow up in your salvation. If you've been born again, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But it's also good from time to time to check your growth. You know, when, when kids were growing up, sometimes the parents draw a little mark on the wall. You know, here's how tall Johnny was on his eighth birthday or whatever. Uh, we need to take some assessment of our spiritual growth. How are we growing? Are we growing in faith? Are we growing in our understanding of who God is? Are we growing in our desire to worship Him, to praise Him? Are we growing in our prayer life? Are we growing in our overall understanding of the truth of Scripture? So much more we could say about that, but I think you get the point. Babies have been born again, but babies also need to grow. It says in verse 3, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Yeah, as a babe in Christ, you can begin to taste spiritual things. You begin to uh, receive spiritual satisfaction, spiritual pleasure, if you will, as you interact with the presence of God and with His Word. And what it does is you want more and you want more and you want more. Crave the, the milk. Crave the, the nourishment of God's Word. Okay, let's move on to the second one. In verse 4, we read, As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Of course, the living stone here is referring to Christ. He is the rock of our salvation. He is the solid, firm foundation upon which we are now building our lives. And it's interesting, I'm going to take you through this uh, a little bit more carefully but at least in the NIV, it might be one or two shy in King James. Nine times in this passage, Peter refers either to stones or rocks. You know why? Well, first of all, that's what his name means. (laughs) And it's not totally clear to me, but it seems that he was Simon, and Jesus named him Peter. And he kept that name from then on. <clears throat> and in Matthew 16, you remember the exchange, who do men say that I am? Who do you say I am? Peter says, I know, I know, I know. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, A plus Peter, great job. You didn't figure that out. My Father from heaven revealed that to you. And that's where there's this funny little play on words where Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. 
in the Greek, you get it. In the English, it's not real clear. You are Peter, Greek word Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Two different words. If you look it up, Petros means a piece of a rock. It's like a smaller version. It's a smaller stone. And on this rock, Petra, is like a massive bedrock. And I have to believe that that moment transformed Peter's life. And here he is, years later, still writing about rocks and stones. He says, you've come to Christ, but he doesn't say you've come to Christ. You've come to the living stone. You've come to the living stone. And it gets better. He was rejected by men, chosen by God, precious to him. You also, point to yourself and say, you also. You can touch yourself, by the way, even though we got to elbow bump each other. You also, like what? Living stones are being built into a spiritual house. Living stones built into a house. Now, you all are looking pretty good today, but some churches I visit, i got to be honest with you, I'm not sure if some of the stones are alive or dead. Do you hear me? He says you're living stones. Why? Because you came to the living stone. We don't have any life in us. We get life from the living stone. The living bread. The living way. The living word. He is the bread of life. He is the resurrection and the life. My friend, when you come to Jesus, you're coming to life. And when Christ comes into you, life comes into you. Eternal life. Divine life, powerful life, overcoming life, living stones. Now, if we didn't go any further here, we might just think, well, praise God, we've all gotten born again. We're all going to be, you know, eating and drinking and growing up. And, you know, I'll stay in my house and you stay here and you stay over there and we'll all live happily ever after. But God is up to something more than that. He's building something. Ephesians says he's building a holy temple. Not with bricks and mortar and shingles. It's a spiritual house built out of people, living stones. And the bedrock, the foundation of it all, is the Petra. It's Christ, the living stone, the rock of our salvation. Notice something else it does not say. We are not living mush. (laughs) We're living stones. Stones are strong. Stones are firm. Stones are used as uh, foundations and they're used in walls because they're sturdy. They can bear a lot of burden. They can bear a lot of weight. God's not called you to be mush. He's called you to be a rock like he is. To be firm, to be solid in Jesus Christ. To stand up for what's right and not go, oh. He's building something. And Jesus said, I will build my church. 
on this rock, I will build my church. And now that Christ has gone back to the Father, the Holy Spirit has assumed that job. And Ephesians 2 says that Jesus Christ, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone together with the foundation of apostles and prophets We're being built together by the Spirit of God into a holy temple, a holy habitation for God. God is going to live in this house. This is God's house that's being built. This is the place where God is going to dwell for all eternity. Made up of these living stones who have been born again by the Word of God. As I mentioned, uh, if you go through this, I underline them in the NIV. Um, verse 4, you've come to the living stone. Verse 5, you also like living stones. Uh, in verse 6, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious corner stone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Nine times. Petros, the little rock, Peter, makes references to stones, rocks. Jesus, this was prophesied way back in Isaiah, for in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. And Peter's quoting from a whole bunch of scriptures here. Then from Psalm 118, he quotes about how the very stone, the the foundation stone of the temple would be rejected by the builders. The builders in this case were the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, all who rejected him. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And, quoting from another place, He's also a rock of offense. He's a rock of stumbling. It literally means he's a rock that trips people up. Many people today are tripping over Christ. They're they're stumbling over him because they refuse to accept him. They refuse to believe on him. And Jesus said one of two things will happen. You'll either fall on the rock or the rock will fall on you. Which do you want? I'd rather fall on the rock this morning and say, my God, help me. Have mercy on me. Cleanse me of all my failures and my, what was it, billions of failures. I don't want to wait and have the rock fall on me. He's talking about judgment. So, having come to the living stone, he now makes us living stones. Living stones that are being built together into a spiritual house. It's funny, this morning I was thinking about the verse and it actually came up in one of the songs, how 
uh, Jesus said, if the rocks remain silent, I'm sorry, if you remain silent, the rocks will cry out. (laughs) And in the context, everybody was praising him. And, you know, the religion, there's always some Pharisee around says, you better quiet them down. They're getting too excited here. And that's when Jesus said, if, if I try to silence them, the rocks are going to praise me. The rocks will praise me. How much better when a living stone being built into God's house lifts his or her hands before the Lord and says, I love you, Lord. You're beautiful. You're glorious. You're my father, my friend, my redeemer. You're my all in all. The third thing, and this is a big one, and I'm not going to take a lot of time on it because I think we're all quite familiar with it, but he tells them in verse 9, you are a chosen generation. And I don't know why uh, the NIV changed that, and I'm sorry they did, because generation is a very important word there. And it captures what I recently discovered is the essence of this whole passage. My Bible says you're a chosen people, which is fine, but Peter is saying something more than that. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know how to look things up (laughs) on the uh, concordance. And here's what happens. Remember, he started in chapter 1, verse 3, talking about being born again, right? Then again, at the end of chapter 1, he's talking about being born again through the Word of God. Chapter 2, he's talking about being newborn babes. Are you with me? When he comes to verse 9 and says, you are a chosen generation, the Greek word there is genos, G-E-N-O-S. Genos. And it literally means offspring. So literally what Peter is saying, you are God's chosen offspring. It's actually talking about birth. It's not just a people. He's, he's keeping this same train of thought throughout this whole address. He's writing the born again people. The offspring of God. God's generation, if you will. They've been born again. It's interesting, in the Spanish Bible, they actually translate it um, a lot closer. It's a chosen lineage. Chosen lineage. We are related to God now. We're his offspring. And so it's to that group of people that Peter says, you are a chosen generation. But be careful. He chose us. But we also need to choose him. Because throughout this passage, you'll notice several times, it makes a distinction between those who come to the living stone and those who don't. Those who trust in him and those who don't. Go back to verse uh, 5 Well, verse 6. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone 
that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So thank God he chose us, but we need to choose him. And you may have chosen him six months ago or six years ago or 60 years ago. That's great, but choose him again today. Every day we must choose him. We must uh, make it a matter of our will again. Lord, I give you myself. I surrender to you. I trust in you. Even with all this stuff that's shaking around me, I make a new consecration of my life. I'm going to trust you, so help me God. I'm going to trust you. I've come to you to be my living rock, my living stone. And I know you'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. Your promises are yes, and I say amen to every one of them. Along with this, he says, not only are you a chosen generation, but he goes on in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. The people of God. And in another place, um, somebody can help me find it, uh, where it talks about a people belonging to God. Maybe it's different in your translation. Anyway, can't find it now. Uh, You are a chosen generation, a people who were not a people, but now you're his people. You belong to God. What's it say in 1 Corinthians 6? You are not your own. If you want to be saved, you can't be your own anymore. Because salvation is called redemption. And redemption means you've been bought. And that's what 1 Corinthians 6 says. You are no longer your own. You were bought with a price. God has stamped His name on your life. I now belong to him. I belong to him. We are a people belonging to the Lord. We're not our own. We're not doing our own thing anymore. We're not about our own agendas or or our own ambitions. We're about his agenda. We're about his plan, his program, what God wants to do in the earth in these last days. All right, moving along. You are a holy, and then later it uses the word royal, priesthood. Two different words. I remember the first time I read this years ago, I was like, I'm not a priest. I had some bad images in my mind from growing up of what a priest looked like, and I didn't want to be one. (laughs) I certainly didn't want to be wearing that backwards collar and, you know, some black suit and acting all holy just because it was Sunday. And little by little, I began to understand that that's not what God is talking about here. Priests, you find all through the Bible. It's a very important theme, Old and New Testament. And all the way into the book of Revelation, we are told that he wants us to be kings and priests. Kings and priests. What kind of a priest does God want us to be? Well, first of all, I think we need a little basic understanding of what a priest does. Let me make it real simple. I'm God, and that's me. Okay? 
two entities, God and me. A priest is somebody who stands in between. And a priest serves a number of functions. Now, we are not a sacrifice in the sense that Jesus became our mediator between God and man because he laid down his life for us. However, a priest is someone who's between God and the people. And it's kind of a two-way function. In the Old Testament, priests were God's representatives who taught the people. They taught them God's word. They taught them God's ways. Then they turned around and they went before the Lord with prayer, with intercession, and with sacrifice on behalf of the people. Let me tell you something. It was vitally important in the Old Testament that they had a priest. There were cases in the Old Testament where a plague broke out far worse than coronavirus. And thank God there was a priest like Aaron who could stand in between the plague and the people. And even so, 70,000 died on one occasion. So priests stand between God and the people, representing the people to God in prayer, in intercession, in sacrifice, offering sacrifices up to God, and then telling the people God's word, his decrees, his statutes. Well, now it's a little simpler to understand. He's called you to be a priest. He's called me to be a priest. We come together to offer sacrifices to God, not lambs and bulls and goats. The sacrifice of our life, the sacrifice of praise the Bible talks about. You know, the the biggest sacrifice of all is what Romans 12 talks about. I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Live as a sacrifice to God. Take up your cross daily. Lay down your will and be a sacrificial offering for Him. And then you'll find it's very easy, and this is coming up in our text also, to offer the sacrifices of praise. God loves those sacrifices. And a priest is constantly in that position of either offering up to God or then offering what God gives them to people around them. Whether it's on your job, in your school, in your neighborhood, God has placed you there to be a priest, to be a minister. Pray for the people around you. And as God opens up opportunities, share the word of God with them. Share your testimony with them. Be an influencer for the kingdom wherever God has put you. Okay, on to the next one. Your chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Oh, here it is. A people belonging to God. How many nations? How many nations? One holy nation. One holy nation. One nationality. Now, I know we all have our countries that we came from. You have documents indicating that. Um, 
we're not saying throw all of that away. Uh, we have our, you know, customs and traditions and whatnot from our different uh, nations of birth. But something that superintends and superimposes over all of that is the fact that we are all citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. That's what it says in Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. And I think we all understand the importance of a passport, right? Don't try to travel without one. (laughs) And, boy, I've gotten into a few jams over the years with passports. Uh, One time I traveled. This was long before they were real stringent on checking all these things at the airport. And I didn't know it, but I had less than six months left on my U.S. passport. And, you know, I checked in and got on the plane and flew to Venezuela. Had a nice time in Venezuela, and I was to leave Venezuela and and travel directly to Trinidad. So, you know, we are having a convention the next night in Trinidad. I timed it perfectly, so I'll get there for the opening meeting. And, you know, I present my documents at the counter, and they say, you're not leaving Venezuela. I got my ticket. I got to be there. Uh, Sorry. You have less than six months left on your U.S. passport. You're not going anywhere till you go to the U.S. Embassy and get your passport renewed. Had to end up spending a whole day in Venezuela, get the documents sorted out, and I made it late to Trinidad. The point being, you better have the right documents. You better have the right passport to get into heaven. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. Takes me back to my first point. You must be born again, or better translation, born from above. I'm born in heaven. That's where my citizenship is now. I may look and sound and talk a little bit like an American, but that's not really who I am now. I'm a citizen of heaven. And that prevails over everything. I am a citizen of heaven. I have been separated unto God, a holy nation. Holy is a word that scares a lot of people. All the word holy means is separate. That's all it means. When things in the Old Testament had to be sanctified or made holy, they were set apart. They were special. They were set apart for a specific use or purpose. It often involved cleansing, washing, making it pure because it was being set apart for a special purpose or use. But in its simplest form, something holy just means it's been set apart. If you're born again, if God has called you to be a living stone built together into a spiritual house, if you know that you've been chosen by God and that you are now a royal priest unto God and you understand that he's called you out to be a holy nation. Notice in verse 9 again, 
You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him. There's the spiritual sacrifice. Who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's a separation. Come out. Come out of the darkness. And, you know, in the beginning, when God said, let there be light and there was light, the very next thing he does is separate light from darkness and actually gives them two different names. He called this light and he called that darkness. He called this day and he called that night. So there was no gray area in between. He wanted a clear separation. And this is a real problem in the world today. We want to mix it all up. And God is saying, come out of the darkness into my light. You need to leave some of those things that you were doing in the darkness. You need to leave them behind and come into my marvelous light. That's what holiness does. It separates you. It calls you. Something's calling on our lives. If you're born again, I promise you, something's calling you from the very day you got born again. It's calling you. Come out of that darkness. Come out of that stuff. I know when I first got saved, this is going to be real hard for you to believe, but I was a long-haired hippie. Long-haired, pot-smoking, rock-playing hippie. And honestly, I got saved in California. A young man there led me to the Lord. And uh, basically... A lot of things I just discovered or experienced on my own. Because he let me stay in his apartment for about a month. He would go to work all day. And I was there all alone. And he told me, just read your Bible and pray. (laughs) And somehow, God started to speak to me about many, many things in my life. I didn't have somebody saying, you need to cut your hair You need to stop smoking weed. You need to do this. You need to do that. I just knew I needed to leave those things. And my life changed. I'm not bragging or boasting. Quite the contrary. I would have never changed any of those things. But God started to call me out of darkness. Out of darkness. Into his marvelous light. All I wanted to do was read the Bible. Go to church. Praise the Lord. Find out more about this Savior who died for me on Calvary. I wasn't interested in the things of the world anymore. And that leads me to the final one. These are related, but I made it a separate point since Peter does. He calls them aliens, or I guess uh, King James probably says pilgrims. Um, Verse 11. Strangers and pilgrims. I'm sure you've heard, you know, songs or maybe preachings about this, but it's good for all of us to be reminded. We're just passing through. That's what a pilgrim's doing. We're just passing through. This is not my home. This is not my permanent dwelling place. The NIV uses alien, which I think also gets that idea across. And I don't know about you, I'm... American-born, I'm an American citizen, and I do not feel like this place is my home. I do not. I want to go home. I want to be in my home with my Father, with the angels. I want to be in a place where it's pure and holy, and we worship 
day and night. And the idea here is clear. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, and they might do that, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. We're not of this world. Jesus said it a little bit differently in John 17. You're in the world, but you're not of it. Make sure you understand the difference there. We're in it. You got to get on the train, on the subway, on the bus. You got to go to work. You got to mingle with people at school. You're going to be surrounded sometimes by pagans, people with really bad spirits, with wrong uh, minds and, and ideas that are completely set against God. You're going to be in the midst of all of that, but somehow, You have to not be of it. In it, but not of it. Passing through like a pilgrim. Your chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There is one part in the King James translation that I really like. We're a peculiar people. Peculiar people. Is that verse 9? Yeah. Chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation. A peculiar people. That doesn't mean we're supposed to act weird. (laughs) Anybody ever been around a weird Christian and they made you uncomfortable? That's That's not what Peter's talking about. We're not supposed to just be weird to be weird. But let me add this little caveat. The world is weird. The world is not afraid or ashamed to be completely lunatic. They are just off the chart crazy now. And that kind of helps me loosen up a little bit as a believer now. I don't drive my, in my car that much because I walk to school. But when I used to drive more, I would see somebody next to me, you know, at the light going, acting like a complete maniac. And I'd roll my windows down and start hollering in tongues and say, if they can do it, I can do it too. I'm going to be crazy for you, Jesus. Look, we're not going to blend in. We're not supposed to blend in. We're supposed to be a city on the hill. We're supposed to be a peculiar, a unique, a special people. Maybe a better word would be different. Because he separated us to be a holy nation, we're going to be different. We're not going along with the world for all their parties and all their philosophies and all the stuff they're doing. We're going to be different. And we need to be firm about that. And, you know, again, we don't have to be weird. We don't have to be mean. But just, you know, I'm different. God set me apart from that. I don't do that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. We're not of this world. We're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
And the NIV translates that peculiar people, a people belonging to God. And in the actual uh, original Greek, uh, it's a little bit of both. We're special, but it also refers to the fact that he's acquired us. We belong to him. He has called us out of darkness, but he's also snatched us out. Colossians says he's translated us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. So it seems that we've chosen him and he's also pulled us out of that slime and confusion and darkness. So let's tie all this together. Who are you? Who am I? What's going to define my identity in this day and age where I would say there's an identity crisis? People don't even know who they are. They don't know their right hand from their left. We, of all people, need to be absolutely sure of who we are. I am a child of God. I've been born from above. God's holy seed is in me now. I belong to Him. He's called me out of darkness into His marvelous light. He's taking me as a living stone and He's building me together into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Don't just praise God on Sunday morning. He didn't make you a one-day-a-week priest. You're a full-time priest. Praise Him Monday. Praise Him Tuesday. Praise Him Wednesday. Praise Him in the morning. Praise Him at noon. Praise Him at night. If you get up in the middle of the night, praise Him a few times. And ask God how He wants you to function as his priest in your school, on your job, in your neighborhood, wherever you go. Maybe it's to pray for the people. Maybe God will also give you some opportunities to share some of God's word, some of God's truth with them. And Jesus is coming back for this group of people, a chosen people, a chosen generation, a holy nation, whose nationality and citizenship is foremost in and from heaven, because that's where we're going. We're pilgrims and strangers just passing through here looking for a better country, looking for a better citizenship in heaven where we will spend eternity with him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light for our path. God, there's so much darkness and confusion in the world today, but you, O God, have laid your hand upon us. And Lord, you've revealed light and truth to us. And you're guiding us and steering us away from so much that's dangerous and confusing in the world. God, I pray for everyone here today that we would have a clear revelation of who we are in Christ. That we are your children. We are your offspring. We're your holy generation, your holy nation. You have chosen us. You have called us. You've set us apart for your purposes. And God, I pray that each one of us would fulfill that calling upon our lives. Lord, that we would be and do all that you have destined us to be. And God, in our unique ways, 
Let us be peculiar. Let us be different. Let us be special. But Lord, let us never forget we're doing it for you. Father, I thank you for your presence here today. Thank you for the wonderful time of worship and praise that we've had together. And now, even as we close this service, let us go with your presence. And Lord, never leave us, never forsake us. Continue to work in us, both the will and do of your good pleasure. Speak to us day and night. Finish the good work that you've started and prepare us for your soon return as we are in the last of the last days, O God. Let us not fear. Let us not give in to panic, but let us lift our heads up for our redemption draws near. We praise and thank you for each and every one here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you all.